0: Happening now we'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 113 for November the 7th, 2018. I am West Fryer, even though I'm sporting the beefaroo shirt, which I'm sure so many people know what that is from, uh, yeah, section, I think what West, maybe Western Illinois, something like that. Uh, you know, we have some folks that are much smarter and much better dressed on the show tonight, for sure. Um, I am coming to you from Oklahoma City, where I am the Director of Technology at the Cassidy School. And we've been enjoying lovely fall weather, although it is just starting to get a little bit colder. And I think the rains are coming back. So anyway, it is... Uh, I, I had to actually move my backdrop here, which was the remnants of Halloween candy. So, <laughs> we were off last week and... Anyway, of course, there's always a lot of stuff that, that is happening. So uh, with three of us in here tonight, we, uh, you know, there's even more articles to talk to than usual. So let me throw it up to our – or actually sort of, uh, I guess, southeast uh, to our special guest from Texas, Welcome, welcoming Jason Kern. Jason, tell us where you're at and what you're up to these days.
1: Hi, hey, everyone. I am Jason Kern, and I am the assistant head of school for innovation and learning at All Saints Episcopal School in Tyler, Texas. Fortunately, um, I'm still at school, so I got to be the better dressed because I definitely could not be the smarter of the three of us. So that was, that was my choice there. Um, so we are a three year old through 12th grade, uh, school out here in Tyler. And so this is my second year here after 20 years at the Oak Ridge School in Arlington, Texas, uh, where I did everything from coaching to teaching to, um, director of technology, modern learning, all that different kind of stuff and had an opportunity to come out here with somebody that I worked with for 19 years at Oak Ridge, who's the head of school out here now. So we're having a lot of fun. Uh, we spend a lot of time uh, focusing on authentic learning is really kind of our focus out here. And that goes everything from the largest On campus learning farm in Texas, we've got 20 raised uh, plots where our first through fourth graders or second through fourth graders are farm field hands and our first graders are chicken farmers and um, all the way up to a brand new center for innovation. Two two years ago, that includes a virtual reality room, blended learning room, entrepreneurial cafe, uh, digital studio for broadcast. Um, so we're, we're having a lot of fun and trying to bring hands on real world learning to students. And that's our focus.
0: That is fantastic. Well, I saw you had dropped a bunch of uh, VR virtual reality articles in. So we I'm sure we're going to, we're going to go there tonight. Um, we also want to go up to Missoula, Montana, where if it wasn't a global tour, it at least took him to North Dakota. Welcome back, Jason Neifer. <laughs>
2: Hi Wes, it is great to be back here. Uh, I feel like I need to like reintroduce myself uh, to the show, but my name is Jason Knifer, and I'm the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school, which is housed on the University of Montana campus in fabulous Missoula, Montana. And since we often talk to the uh, talk about the weather to begin the show, Wes, it started snowing here. So 36 hours ago, we had about four weeks of. Kind of dreary, cloudy, gray day weather here in Missoula. And um, yesterday morning I awoke to a winter wonderland here in Missoula. So the winter is here. Um, and it's true, I've, I've done a lot of traveling the last uh, five or six weeks or so. The majority of it was in far northeastern Montana, so far northeastern that it actually made more sense to travel first to North Dakota and then back into Montana to visit uh, a number of wonderful rural schools in Montana. And then uh, between every Everything else in life, I may or may not be buying a new house and all sorts of <laughs> blah, blah, blah uh, is, is intervening. But I'm super glad to be back. And uh, if for no other reason, then I have a reason to not feel guilty about, uh, you know, digging through uh, an extraordinary amount of technology, media. Um, and there have been some cool things that have happened in the two weeks since the last episode. So I'm looking forward to talking about those things tonight.
0: Absolutely. Well, shout out to Peggy George who is there in our chat room. And if anyone is joining us live, we definitely want to encourage you to check out our live chat. Uh, I am actually going back to my MacBook, so the wife is on her her MacBook Air that I've usually borrowed with a little better processor there. So hopefully uh, we'll we'll hold out okay in terms of of the hosting, but uh, we'll try to give voice to any questions that. That Peggy and others may have and we want to also definitely mention at the top of the show that our show notes are available at edtechsr.com slash links, where you'll find the embedded Google document that has far more than we will have time to talk about in the next, uh, you know, 50, 50 minutes, 55 minutes, we were a few minutes late starting so we'll probably go a few minutes after the top of the hour. So Jason Kern, where would you like to begin tonight with our discussion.
1: Well, I mean, I have several things that I was interested in from from the stuff that you guys put in. But uh, one of the things that I've, I've read lately that, that's really interested me is this um, ASU, Arizona State University, going to an online biology class uh, offering virtual labs with a partnership with Google. Um, so I don't know if you guys have seen that, but it, it really they started out, obviously, in virtual education, you know, as you think about science classes, uh, one of the limitations is how, how are we going to do labs? How are we going to do dual credit? How are we going to do, you know, these type of education? Um, but not have that lab component, not have that hands on component. And, and they've really jumped out there and put with Labster, uh, put on some great uh, offerings through virtual reality. uh and allowing students now to go through and go through these labs and, and you know we've we've been fascinated with virtual reality um and done some stuff there. We actually started two summers ago uh, and we we went to the biggest experts we could find, which happened to be ninth grade students uh, who were really into this and as we were building our center for innovation, they were like we we really want to have a virtual reality lab." Yeah, and we were like, well, we don't have the budget to, to build the kind of, kind of virtual reality computer we're in a need and, and the headsets and everything. And they were like, well, we, we can do that. And so actually my first day on the job was taking, uh, two kids to comp, uh, to computer, um, parts store here in Dallas. We picked out all the parts. Well, we, they picked out all the parts. They brought it back. They built the entire computer. They constructed the whole VR lab. And to see how passionate these kids are about virtual reality and the possibilities that it has uh, is fascinating to me. I certainly don't think it's at the point where it's going to replace anything. I think another one of the articles we put in there was about how it's a supplement to great education, right? It's It's got lots of potential. It's got ideas down the road that I think, you know, will open up bigger possibilities, but, but right now it's a fantastic supplement to really engage kids and to kick off units and to really give them relevance of why do I want to learn this? Why does geography matter? Well, it matters a whole lot when you're trying to show somebody around on a virtual tour of Paris talking about cultural aspects and you've got a classroom or virtual lab set up where we have a class sitting around a student uh, actually utilizing the virtual reality so they can actually be instructing that student. Well, this is where you want to go. Oh, remember, it's over there, that type of thing. And so having those possibilities and then just from the other side, having the kids thinking about the programming and the computer building and the problem solving. We right now we're trying to our kids took on the challenge to to build a dual headset environment off of a single computer, which only a couple places that I know in education are doing that. MIT being one of them. I don't know many, if any, K-12 schools that actually have a setup like that. And, and watching these kids problem solve through that real world, you know, idea of how we can actually make this happen. We know theoretically it can happen, but how are we going to make it happen? And they thought, oh, we can build a server. We can run virtual desktops. It's going to work great. They get it together and they're like, okay, it's not working the way they thought it was going to. And, and once again, what I love about this is these aren't even kids in a class. This is 100 percent student driven outside the class. So how can we find engaging things like this or just things that kids are passionate about in virtual reality? I think it's one of those ideas right now and let them run with it and then bring it into the classroom as students. They actually are the ones that the teachers go to and say, hey, we want to bring our French class in and, and tour around Paris because we're talking about the Eiffel Tower and some of the culture there. And the students then get with the teachers and they run it. And then there's a great student-teacher partnership. So I, it's just one of the things that we've found just really taken off at our school and and then just seeing the possibilities all the way up to higher ed and and all the way down to lower school when they're doing the traditional state project and they want to go see monuments of the of their state and you can actually take them there and, and see it and we all know the the value of going on a field trip well we can't take a field trip to every state in the union but we can now with virtual reality right
0: Man, I'm thinking Ready Player One. I just love yeah. that movie, and then I read the book too. Jason, yeah. are you guys uh, thoughts on this? And are, is the Montana Digital Academy touching VR for for labs or those kind of things yet?
2: Uh, it, it's it's a great question. We we've had a long time uh, fascination is probably a strong word, but we've certainly been keeping a close eye on the development of these technologies. And one of the reasons why that's the case is because We do think that there are, I mean, we can recreate lots of things uh, in the face-to-face environment, in an online environment. For example, like if you're teaching, trying to teach the core skills of what a science lab is about. Uh, We've had teachers that have run labs on video and provided data. Uh, We've had some that have have mimic labs locally with local supplies. And we have a lot of strategies that that meet the standard, I guess, or or, uh, allow students to have enough of experience to say that they are ready to do something in a future class prepares them for the future. But I think that lacks a lot of whimsy. And so for us, I think adding in the virtual and augmented reality component will will at some point be a big deal for us. The biggest problem we run into in our model is because none of our students are local. They're all distance students. We serve students in 200-plus high schools in any given semester um, across the state of Montana. And something that that we'd like to mention about Montana is that, um, you know, it's big. Uh, it's a very large state, and so you know it's not as easy to to get kids to go even to regional centers to grab equipment. But I'm hoping that standardization of equipment becomes a bigger part of the market in, in the upcoming uh, two to three years. Uh, one of the things that's been kind of annoying about the distraction of Facebook and their shenanigans is that you know they have a huge VR play that is uh, uh, very much part of of their mix, and they've they've announced new products in the last uh, several weeks that are starting to diminish the hardware requirements for things like uh, uh, virtual reality headsets. And I can't remember, it's not Oculus Go, it's some newer technology they're releasing that has even a a, a thinner hardware deck that comes along with it. At some point, that's going to make it a real reality for us. and We're very excited about that content. I feel like bandwidth is becoming less of an issue there. I feel like producers are starting to come up with a lot of interesting, in some cases, free content for folks in that arena. We just need hardware prices to go down a little bit, so it's not an unreasonable ask to have that equipment available in a variety of schools across the state, but um, ASU is doing interesting stuff. Uh, Not only are they uh, an incredible provider of distance learning college courses, they've been really making a play for more high school offerings in the past couple of years, and in fact, I have a sales rep uh, that is uh, 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 kind of continually badgering me in my email box to look at some of the interesting things they're doing in the K-12 arena, so it's great to hear that they're going into, um, I think, this very fertile ground of, of, of science labs and, and ex- experiential science uh, through a virtual reality and an augmented reality uh, framework.
0: Definitely. Well, one of the other articles that uh, I think, Jason Kern, you put in was taught was from Educause, which I had a chance to actually uh, go to that a few years ago. And it's, I, I think it's probably still the, the preeminent you know, ed tech for higher ed conference, lots of cutting edge stuff. I got in on some really cool badge things that I've continued to learn about, but it was talking about, you know, universities and how they're trying to spur and encourage faculty innovation around that space. Um, and and I definitely think that that transformative level is what's most important. Um, I'd be interested. I know Nearpod. they mentioned in one of those articles, they have a lot of content for K-12. I think Carl Hooker, who was on the show a while back um, had, And I think talked about that a little bit. Um, So I I don't know. Our experience as mine has really been a little bit more of just the, the G whiz, you know, here, here's, here's something in virtual reality. I think that always happens with technology, right? It's new, it's glitzy. So we really focus on that technology it doesn't become, you know, until it's normalized, we, we tend to focus on the tech so much more than the content. Um, we did try to to use the clouds over Sidra, you know, UN3D, um, 3D, um Video that is about a refugee camp in Syria, uh, but there's still some. There were technical issues, right? Even for students bringing their device, it's like multi multi gigabit, you know, size for for how big those files are. And so, anyway, I've I did look last year at the possibility of renting some some headsets, right? So you, you won't necessarily have to invest, you know, in in the whole thing because also it's going to change so quickly. Um, but like Jason said, I'm I'm real interested in the. Uh, the, you know, the, the platforms that are not going to um, be as heavy on the requirements in terms of of uh, outside desktop CPU. So the, the more we start to have the, the phones being able to process so much more, um, I don't know, it's, it's an emerging technology, but it sounds like, Jason, you guys are really far advanced in terms of what you're already being able to realize. And uh, that is pretty amazing because I know the, the little bit that I've tasted of that at the Microsoft store, uh, you know, here in Oklahoma City. And then we had the ISAS Arts Festival, um, which uh, comes every every spring to our region. And one of the really cool things that was innovative um, were, you know, students, again, like you said, who were passionate about that and had set up that as a demo area. Um, but it's still, it's a taster, right? So are your students creating content yet, Jason and Kern, in, uh, in, in that environment? Or is, are they still pretty much utilizing content others have created?
1: So it, we're, we're really starting to try to build the idea of, of creating content. Um, we've started out with fourth graders working with co-spaces, which I know was brought up uh, a couple shows ago, um, and, and really starting to build virtual worlds around, for example, what would this character do inside of this novel? Um, and, and then looking at bringing unity in uh, in the middle school to upper school level, and there's a really interesting platform called Playmaker, which, if you've programmed with Swift before with the wireframes and that kind of stuff, kind of makes it a little bit more accessible um, than than a straight Unity programming platform. Um, that I'm really interested. Playmaker. Okay. Um, and it's a it's an add-on, so it looks like Swift and the little I've played with it, but it, it's something that that you know we're really trying to build our programming um program here uh, it, it hasn't been robust uh previously and and starting off with really i found um raspberry pi to be a great introduction to programming that physical computing aspect um i think that anything that, that kids can go beyond that conceptual i think so much of programming gets bogged down and sometimes like you're just watching this, you know, very, you know, ethereal idea instead of like watching something actually happen physically or a character move across the screen quickly. Um, and, and that's really, I think, an interesting piece that we're exploring is is how can we go for a little bit lower entry, higher ceiling? Uh, and I think Raspberry Pi is offering that a lot. And I think that there are some elements uh, in co spaces and playmaker that hopefully will bring that virtual reality, another piece that we did last year um, i'm sure uh, Wes when you were touring colleges with your son, you got those virtual tours of a campus um, that could that come in and you build the you know, the Google Cardboard and put your phone in and watch a virtual tour of our campus. Well, we had a student get one of those last year and was like, well, why don't we have one of these for our school? And I was like, I don't know. Why do we not have one of these for our school? And so he went and figured out what he needed and he went and pitched uh, the idea. And so one of the things that we do here is really put it back on the students, say, OK, you want to do something? We'll come up with a plan, come pitch it to us and, and we'll fund it. And so he came in and had some research, but wasn't quite there yet. And we said, well, that's a good idea, but I don't think you're quite there yet. And he came back and really had a great plan. And, and he actually built a virtual reality tour of our school last year uh similar to one of those college campuses so he picked some spaces on there so we've dabbled into it um we don't have a, a really set out program once again right now it's a very student-driven uh activity at all saints
0: well here's a segue to a, a, an amazing article from last week like i would say this is this is one of the most amazing articles i've read in months and this is um uh, how and i don 't have it this is for last week it 's at the top of episode one twelve on the show notes how humans get hacked you 've all Noah Harari and Tristan Harris talk with wired um, and so part of what you know they talk about is just our brains and, and how we 're wired and like for v r for instance, right we can totally buy into even though you know you have a headset on and you're holding these paddles you know you can your body when you're standing you think at the what looks like the edge of a precipice or you know looking outside the you're like on top of the sears tower or something and then somebody pushes you or whatever i mean your your our brains are very very hackable and uh the context of that article is really not just about social media but in advertising and advertising and politics, but really how you know uh, saying that the the uh, political systems of uh, Western democracy were built on very idealistic visions of how autonomously you know how autonomously capable people are of making decisions, and that really we are so influenced and and we're just not. Really aware of how hackable we are. So anyway, that's tied in with VR. And uh, again, I'd reference Ready Player One. If anybody out there hasn't watched that, it's the Steven Spielberg uh, movie. Uh, just really, um, you know, we we've got Minecraft, and of course now Fortnite, and there's things that have sort of eclipsed it. I think for the students at our school, at least, you know, some of the younger kids, where they're spending their time. But it's just pretty pretty amazing the the kinds of experiences which which students can have today in virtual environments and we are just rapidly, you know, being propelled down this road where that's gonna become a a big part of the world that we live in is this virtual world that we can we can tap into. The Oasis if we're pretty player one fans.
1: Yeah, come on. You gotta you gotta push the book, not the movie. Come on.
0: Okay. Well the book is a lot better. My sister in law is a librarian and I maybe had heard this before, but she said, Oh, that's always what you gotta do. You see the movie first because then you're not disappointed and then you read the book and you're like, Ah, yes, this is the real Well, movie. they're
1: they're two totally different things, right? They like it wasn't even the same same story. There was a lot
0: of different <laughs> twists. I enjoyed them both. I really enjoyed them both. Yeah. So All right. Well, Mr. Jason uh knifer where would you like to take us next we're not uh i i know we're not going to be getting through half these articles tonight no no (laughs) well
2: we weren't around last week to talk about the new Apple stuff. So let's talk about the new Apple stuff. Um, I guess I'll start here. And I've kind of turned into our resident Apple naysayer, which is definitely not my intent. Um, but the, the bottom line is that I feel like that Apple hasn't worked very hard for my business in the last uh, four or five years or so. And for um, our guest's benefit, I'm, I'm kind of Chrome guy now. So I'm, I'm joining tonight on a Chromebook. I use a Chromebook Um, about 65, 70% of the time desktop at work. And I have a, an older iMac now that's starting to age a little bit that, uh, is my other computer. And then I carry a Chromebook with me. That's, that's my, that's, that's my engagement in the world now. And, um, I have to say that of the three announcements last week, the most boring one for me was the new Mac minis, although they are, uh, high end enough that you could, pull one off as a desktop. One of the reasons why I, I, I left the flock with Apple was that uh, I didn't feel like they had a Mac. I bought a, a nice Mac Pro in 2008 that... Was still uh, in pretty good shape in 2013, uh, you know, 14, 15, and into 16, but there was no way for me to go from that to the, you know, four or five thousand dollar Mac Pro uh, garbage pan or garbage can style thing that was around. But I got to say, uh, all three of the products released last week are very, uh, very interesting. And so, for those that, that didn't keep a close eye on that, although you would have to have shoe, almost all technology press to miss this. Uh, new MacBook Air, 13-inch MacBook Air, that uh utilizes the retina display which you've been missing there and moves to all USB C connectivity as opposed to the previous connectivity. There is a new iPad Pro that is a USB C iPad Pro that I think has really wonderful and, and, and I think modern looking industrial design. And then there was a refreshed Mac uh uh Mac mini that uh I I didn't watch the, the keynote address, I just watched highlights of it, but apparently it's it's it is much more uh renewed than it looks, even though it's the same basic form factor that it was before. So I got to say, I am not in a position to drop $1,400 on a MacBook Air. I am not in a position to drop $1,800 on a, on a, an iPad Pro, which is the high-end iPad Pro with LTE and, and a terabyte of storage, um, nor am I looking for a desktop computer right now that need a Mac Mini, but I have to say, the next time I buy a tablet or a laptop, suddenly Apple is back, uh, I think, in, in play. And the one article I do want to point out uh, because it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. I dropped in uh, something from today's 9to5Mac, and now that the iPad Pro with USB-C is released, uh, the journalists are starting to do things like plug in all of the USB peripheral or USB-C peripherals that were you know, previously off limits to Apple uh, uh, tablet products. And of course it's a real mixed bag on what works because that's the, the big bummer of USB-C is that it's not nearly as universal, I think as people dreamed But this notion of having a, beautiful pretty uh well-designed tablet that's got that usc uh, connectivity um is is pretty tempting to me so uh Wes, you're usually my counterpoint nowadays uh as i start to ramble and rant about apple stuff what do you think of last week's announcements
0: well i did watch the whole keynote uh on apple tv afterwards that's kind of what i i end up doing in fact i almost sometimes try to hide my eyes you know from the news so get a little surprised um I mean, the most amazing thing was this Photoshop file, which was like, I think it was three gigs. It was either two or three gigs. I think it was a three gig Photoshop file that they worked on that was on the iPad Pro that they had, you know, connected to the full-blown uh, monitor. And so, you know, one of the questions we've talked about is, you know, c- can you make that transition? You know, could an iPad, you know, really become your your daily carry? And uh at what point is that, you know, will that be po- possible? So... I think um, what it's going to do for us at school, I, I don't think we're yet ready to abandon USB, uh, traditional USB. Okay. I mean, our, we've got regular flash drives. I just like the, the little MacBook, you know, 12 inch that I'm on right now. It, it's got the headphone jack on one side and the USB C on the other. And, and I've got, you know, all the, uh, uh, video adapters and whatever. To, you don't leave home without them because, you know, you're not going to find many people that are walking around with those in their bag. I think it's still a, a bridge too far right now uh, because of the different platforms that we support to make that jump to the new MacBook Air. But I do think that the capability of this new iPad um, I think that we may, you know, we're, we're considering offering that as an option for our faculty. We, it's really been up to uh, basically building principals, division directors, uh, if, if faculty have wanted, or departments, if, if they wanted iPads. We didn't, we haven't handed people two devices. You know, you get one device and, and that's been a laptop. But, uh, I think that it'll be interesting to see. We've, um, you know, we're on a, a five year rotation. So we've got, uh, most of the teachers in our primary division, in our pre K and kindergarten teachers who are using C. Saw and doing a lot with, you know, photos and, and using some video to, to communicate back with parents. So it'll be interesting because um, that's, I think, a, a pitch that we're going to actually make next week uh, to give them a choice to say, hey, would you, you know, like to think about making this iPad move, you know, versus sticking with the, the MacBook Air. So I'm not going shopping myself, but we're, you know, always in the refresh business for some devices and and so i think that is is going to open that door we are probably going to update our, our mac minis as well uh, just a lot faster you know more cores that kind of thing so how about you jason kern where, where are you by the way on the whole apple chrome microsoft yeah there he's got them he's got the adapters right there
1: so i've got my adapters i'm also a google certified innovator so i believe in both uh i was very strongly actually um i think that the you know just to I think what you guys all said is, is totally accurate. I can't add too much to that, but I do think there was an interesting article in the show notes about that, that Apple really kind of is positioning itself more as a luxury brand. And I think that is truly where they're going, you know, um, is that it, you talk about, you know, the iPhone that you can get into not really under a thousand dollars anymore. Um, you've got, a MacBook Pro that's going to cost you, you know, two grand. You got that that iPad Pro that's going to cost you. Really, I mean, there's not that entry level piece anymore. I do think one of the things that we did this year is is the low end iPad Pros. Um, we bought uh, uh, about sixty of those this year to put in our lower school, and I think that's been a really nice entry point um, for for those types of things. I think that just from a, if I pick up a Chromebook, so we've got Chromebooks in fifth and sixth grade, fourth, fifth, and sixth were mandatory BYOD seven through 12, and then iPads in the lower grades. Um, and where I was, we were iPads uh, four through eight and then mandatory BYOD. I just believe that the iPad is a more creative device and it makes students and teachers skip the substitution augmentation layers and go to modification transformation or, you know, re- redefinition much more quickly. While it's not that, that you can't do great things on a Chromebook because you absolutely can, but it's also easier for that teacher to, to slip into. Let's take notes. Let's write a paper instead of. You know, I'm gonna toss out let's show with media.
0: Yeah, there you go. Hey. Uh <laughs> shout out to the Atlas conference and, and last year, or maybe this was this was two years ago, this was in, in Burbank, California. Um, went to a session on one to one and it kinda I don't remember what the exact title was, but it's basically like one to one's gone bad. Um and a lot of what they said had to do with parent perception but also teacher. And folks that had gone iPad and they were like, why is the keyboard? Why can't we just type on this thing? We just want to do a tap and paper. You know, it was a lot of folks kind of like that. And it really, they were not focused on transformation. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens at our school because we're, uh, you know, multiple Chromebook carts, especially at our middle division. And, and mm-hmm. ideally, and that's one of the things we're talking about now. Let's have a conversation about what do you want to do and what do you want to create and what do you want your students to do? And I definitely see where the the Chromebook is so much more of, you know, a a comfortable, you know, accommodating like, yes, this this just feels, you know, like this makes me think of being at Texas Tech with distance learning and, and ITV and I was, you know. I was guilty of of saying this to faculty, like, you won't have to change a thing, you know, when you come (laughs) into the distance learning classroom, which like is really not a good pitch because there are things that you should adopt, adapt and change. And, you know, if, if you're lecturing with the overhead projector and you've been doing that forever, I mean, that might not be great pedagogy in any context, whether it's face to face, you know, if, if it's ordered all the time.
1: So. Yeah, it should never be about the device, right? It always should be about the learning goals and and right. how the device amplifies those learning goals. And I think that that when you define your learning goals, you'll define that the device that most easily fits those learning goals at that time. So having a variety of devices is always going to be the best way to go.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. All right, well, I'm going to pick an article here. Oh my gosh, and there's <laughs> there's so many. Uh, to to uh, go to, but um, I, I'm going to go to this BuzzFeed News article. So this is called "This Is How We Radicalize the World" uh, from BuzzFeed News on October the 28th. And one of the things that's been great about uh, you know doing the show with with Jason is it does get me into so many different articles in preparing and. It is hard and I'm not going to try to claim like I've done it or I'm doing it, but it's hard to connect dots. There's so many things going on with, you know, AI and social media and and elections and and Russian hacking and, you know, smart assistants in the home and all these different things. Well, Ryan Broderick, who is the author of this piece, has done a really fantastic job looking globally at the role in which basically technology has empowered fringe outlier and in many cases far right, you know, uh, leaders and then enabled them to come to power. The article is not in the show notes, but there was another one I saw about how YouTubers in Brazil are really polit- are running for office and are really political influencers. And folks are saying you yeah, know, we might see that same kind of thing here. Um, but basically he talks he does talk about uh Sao Paulo and, and that was a a place where we just saw you know a a big uh, election victory for a right wing candidate but he goes back to 2010 um talking about you know WhatsApp and and all, and and you know Facebook users and and Google controlling digital markets and then the way in which that has played into uh, these they are current events, but you know Russian troll farms, you know Hindu nationalists in India, uh, Myanmar, and what's basically happened there with the Rohingya minority, um, and and just a, and, a, and a genocide, and certainly a mass exodus of 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 uh, you know hundreds of thousands of people. Um, you know fast forward to Donald Trump, the election here uh, marine le pen in in france it 's just this is a tour de force of the globe, and i i don 't know for myself that i 've been you know stitching all those pieces together in terms of like yeah, wow, look at how powerful these tools are, and look at what a challenge this you know places. Uh, free and open societies and and democracies specifically, because these groups can really you know le- you know pull the levers of uh, of social media and, and in some cases you know in countries like the Philippines and I think in Myanmar as well, like the name Facebook has become equivalent with internet. Like there's so many of those folks on you know facebook and and then this is also speaking to the failure of facebook to step up to you know policing their platform and recognizing when disinformation is being put out and it's not just disinformation like you know in some cases there have been lynchings that have happened in these small you know towns in india because people have fanned the flames about you know People coming to kidnap children, and, and then there's a, there's a lynching, so it's just – it's a real wild west out there. So any any thoughts there? That's a it's – it's a big topic, but I just I want to commend it to everybody as a you – know, it's just pretty comprehensive because sometimes we'll have an article about Russia or an article about Myanmar, and this one really puts a lot of those pieces together.
2: I would just jump in to say that it echoes, you know, conversations we've been having on this show for, you know, almost well, I guess 2 years, right? Because we uh have been going uh for some time now and I think the the uh really bottom line for me is that it 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 kind of puts back the notion in in my mind that, that we have to have a more comprehensive strategy for media literacy in K twelve classrooms. Like we can't let this stuff be accidental. And in fact, there's a there's another funny article that I'm not sure where I end up sticking this tonight, but I, uh, the, this one from the Scientific American blog. We should teach uh, media literacy in elementary school. And I remember reading the headline going. At, I don't think this is breaking news, right? Uh, I would argue this has been an, an, an argument we've been having in schools for, for upwards of, of six, seven decades. But, you know, I, I think, uh you know, the... The the article you know states I think a lot of broad themes that we have been um, you know absolutely uh, repeating here on the show, but I think the article that you're pointing to, Wes, talks about I mean what the stakes are for not understanding how these tools can tweak us philosophically, uh, uh, psychologically, emotionally. And you know, even in the last 24 hours, I'll tell you uh, there was a pretty funny video on Saturday Night Live on, on on Saturday night. And then again, we're not a political podcast, but for those of you that hadn't, hadn't seen it, it depicted uh, Democrats uh, like totally stressed out over the election, and we're like, it's going to turn out great, and they're shaking, and it's it's they're totally tense, and you know, please go vote, and um, and and it, that hit a chord for me because that you know mimics what I, I see a, a lot going on right now that the very real implication of what has happened in the past three or four election cycles with social media is obviously a very real implication to us from a, a political standpoint, whether you agree with, with the current politicians in charge or not. And, um, you know, the only way we fix that, right, the only way we're going to do that is to give people the tools they need to use the tools appropriately and correctly. And so the more we can have those conversations in a real, real and, and meaningful way in schools, I think the better off we are. So, Jason, what does that look like in your district?
1: Well, and I I think we have to move past having the conversation to putting students in actual situations where they're using it. Right. So if you think about having down in our lower school, we have a green screen and every uh, day, fourth graders put together the announcements and then they lay in green screen behind them for for what they're doing and, and listening to them talk about media. They would never say that they took a media literacy class, right? But if you show them something and you ask them, well, where are they? They're going to say, well, I don't know. They could be in front of a green screen or they could be in Paris. And they are already thinking about that because they've known how to manipulate that. I mean, how in a government class or a history class uh, do we not pop up the the Twitter from last night and say, okay, everybody go pick out a different person and let's look at what they said about the election last night as it went through. And now let's analyze from, you know, 50, you know, 20 different aspects who can determine what really happened and who won and who lost, because doesn't it matter who we follow and where we get our news so much more now than before, maybe that says that, that this is the perspective. I mean, if you read one person's, Twitter feed. You might have thought that there was a huge blue wave last night. And then if you read somebody else's Twitter feed, you'd be like, man, Trump was ecstatic with what happened last night. And how how do we mitigate and decide where we go in there? And, and if we don't put them in that and help them build their network and understand what they're looking at and, and are they putting themselves in an echo chamber? Um, we can talk about media literacy all we want, but we've got to have them actually experience it.
0: And it's so important that that is for the adults as well, right? I mean, uh, we won't recount the specific stories, but we've had several things um, happen recently with adults and social media. Um, And and, and so, you know, it it is about choices of things that we share, but it's also about how we filter our feed, you know, and and the understanding... that the algorithms are really shaping what we're seeing. And so how do we, you know, how do we become proactive about that? And, and so, yeah, I think the, the coding and all that stuff, I was going to mention earlier, uh, Jason Kern, when you talked about getting the move from, from abstract to the real in terms of coding, like, I think that's constructionism. So that's uh, Seymour Papert and, um, you know, Mitch Resnick, MIT Media Lab, or Media Lab Life on Kindergarten Group. They're talking about how, you know, it's different when you really build something and it's, it's a physical manifestation. So like, this stuff has got to become core. And I totally agree that it needs to be in the mainstream curriculum. And that's why integration is so important. And that's why bringing in, um, you know, these kinds of real time feeds and then, you know, being able to find ways to develop computational literacy and, and coding um, and then seeing, you know, we need here's here's a real plug. OK, we need smart folks of all ages to really help figure out how are we going to do democracy in the 21st century. Right. With AIs coming online and with all this capability with what do they call it? Deep fakes. Right. These videos that if you've got a lot of video of, let's say, a president or someone else, it could be anybody. You know, we can make them say almost anything. And the videos are going to just become more and more realistic um. Yeah, we've got some uh, pretty challenging things, and I don't. I don't think the. You know, the, these were not solved by these midterm elections, and they're probably not going to be solved. You know, by the the next round of presidential, uh, next round of presidential elections as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you think about the media literacy and the things that are students are going to have to deal with you guys have been podcasting now for 2 years right so i could probably find you saying every word that's that i'd need to say go take what you've said and over dub it onto a video of you guys and, and make you say whatever i want you to say that's right kind of scary yeah because it's yeah. all on youtube it's all on youtube right. and,
0: in hd so
1: so i mean it, it's it's a strange world we live in and and we can't turn our are you know are back to it and you know one of the the articles uh that's that's in our show notes is is what the times got wrong about kids and phones um can you talk about and, that can and
0: talk about that author because that's a i think she's a key person we we want people to know about
1: yeah i mean artist screen time author and i always mispronounce her name um well going back and trying to find it she wrote the artist screen time. What is her name, Wes? Uh, Anya?
0: Anna Kamenetz.
1: Anna, Anna Kamenetz. And, and she talks so much about, you know, that, that the, the premise of the article is that uh, the New York Times came out in the style section, wrote these articles espousing the idea that the biggest people in tech don't let their stu, you know, their kids use tech. Was was basically be like Steve Jobs and keep your kids away from tech. And, and I think she does a great job of saying that's such a missed opportunity. A, she she goes into a lot of the reasoning behind how that's really not even true, and, and she lays it out. Um, she talks a lot about um, if, if we have that stance, uh, we're also talking about people that have the means to put their kids in activities that can keep them out of tech. You know, one of their arguments was that, well, their nannies look after, you know, police their, their tech screens. Well, for most people, having a nanny is not even possible. Right. And and so so are we disenfranchising other people by suggesting that if you have tech, that's a bad idea instead of really the just, you know, the just of her argument is sit down with your kids learn about what they're doing, talk to them about what they're doing online and digitally and and understand. And that's going to strengthen your relationship with your children. And it's going to make them more tech savvy and and more understanding of the world that they live in. And and so I just thought it's, we we can't go back to the just say no, We, we know that just say no, didn't work. You know, when we were talking about drugs and Nancy Reagan, it, it proved out over time that that wasn't a, a strategy. And, and we can't do the just say no strategy with screen time too. We have to, to be intentional and, and we have to take the opportunity to say, hey, what are you doing with that screen? Are you consuming? She talks about the stats of, you know, students are spending, you know, she has, I can't remember the demographic, but they're spending three hours a day consuming technology. And if if you go back to when I grew up, that was about the same amount of time that people are watching TV. And yet we think there's this, you know, huge problem that's different. It is different. I mean, don't get me wrong. It is a different world. It is a different problem. There are different situations. But. It's not as different as, as we like to think it is um, all the time. I mean, MTV was going to ruin the world, right? And, and so uh, I don't know if you guys have, you guys watched the CNN 80s and 90s um, documentary series on Netflix? Hmm. It's I've really interesting.
2: The, yeah, I've seen some of the 80s one.
1: Yeah, and, and, and when you're watching them, you're like, man, I forgot how MTV was going to ruin the world. <laughs> you know, and, and, and I forgot, you know, some of the misconceptions, uh, that were held at the time. And, and uh, it was good for me to remind myself that I think every generation looks at the generation before them and says that, that they're the ruining heck, the world. The world's yeah. going
0: to heck in a handbasket. Yeah. It exactly. Was, it, was, it was Elvis gyrating his pelvis, you know, on. Top right. When, when my mother was, you know, in high school.
1: And, and I think the big thing that, that I take out of it is, we need to have conversations with our children and with our students and, and truly help them navigate the world that they're in because while they may be tech savvy, they're not necessarily ethically and morally savvy on what's going on and that they can't be at 12, 13, 14, 17. That's part of our role is, is how do we use this technology really well and, and I mean I, I think that the screen time uh new report from Apple is really interesting if you have students or, or children and and you're not sitting down and having a conversation about what that says, not in a accusatory way. And also let's let's not pretend that that we're not culprits of this Either. I mean, I think if we all sit down and say, here's mine, you know, "Here, here's my screen time. What's your screen time? And then have a discussion about it. That that's where we're going to accomplish really having great, great kids and great understanding.
2: Yeah. And I, I would definitely echo the, the notion of uh kind of adults being honest with the kids about it. I think one of the, the problems I, I have sometimes of the kind of over. Over preachiness about about the domination of tech is that, and we, we had some articles on this earlier on in, in our podcast run about how if you look at objectively the amount of time spent with devices, adults are way worse than kids, and in a lot of cases, um, you know, uh, have worse social mores developed, uh, so that because that kids will sometimes not always, I think they could use more guidance here, but kids will sometimes develop rules related to that, recognizing that they're not going to be able to, you know, pay close attention to something off their screen and have unlimited screen time, and so they got to figure out a way to kind of get that engagement back and forth. Um, and I'm, I'm glad this article was kind of a, a response to the New York Times article, and um,
0: uh, Actually, three. There was a, a three-part series that she did in the, in the Times.
2: Uh, yeah. that she did the times, or this is the, no, this is the other one? No, was ones. the
0: response. She was writing okay. the response Jeez. to that three-parter. Yeah. Well,
2: and, you know, this notion of, I like the, the digital gap piece of this, right? Because that's, that's something that, you know, has been, the original digital cap was, of course, uh, device access, and then, uh, um, you know, this is now the, that somehow we've gone in, in, in the way, wrong direction. And, you know, I, I, I think that, it, this, this kind of all or nothing thing is what I think sometimes really makes it really tough to talk about this because I don't think it's, it's all or nothing. In the same way, i don 't think it 's appropriate to have stu- have devices in classrooms that that are that there is no discussion about it, and kids can pull them in and out to their 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 mind's uh, delight because you know the bottom line is is that we have very persuasive research that you know of course kids are going to ignore the task at hand when the internet is available to them right i mean i i uh, uh, you know, I, I, I have a problem with that, right? The Internet is available to me. And since my job is on the Internet, I sometimes, you know, ha- have to stop myself from, you know, spending three hours, you know, researching, um, you know, uh, Soviet political tactics in 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 Czechoslovakia. That's what happens when you're a history nerd, right? But that open discussion where adults and kids together are saying, man, these devices are sure powerful, but sometimes that power comes with, comes with great responsibility. That's where I think a lot of that magic happens. And I'm, I'm glad to see the more of that discussion um, is is happening. Um, I hadn't put uh, two and two together in regards to the uh, 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 is the author of The Art of Screen Time. But I read that book right when it came out because it was featured on the Note to Self podcast on WNYC. And a fascinating book. And it captures... The notion uh really well of that you know like should you ban screen time in your home well it's complicated right like of course you should ban screen time when it's time for the screens to go away but it's 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 never been a yes or no question never will be a yes or no question
0: we've got lots of kids that have struggled with college freedom you know in many ways and now we've got screen freedom right so it could be gaming it could be all kinds of things.
1: Yep. I saw I saw a uh, video recently, and I, I'll see if I can go back and find it. But it was a teacher talking about professional courtesy, and it, it was this idea that that Sorry. you go what what I would call half mast, where you pull the screen down half so you can't see mm-hmm. it, or you go apples up, you turn over your your device. But and and it wasn't about hey everybody needs to pay attention. It's hey okay it's time for pre- professional cur- courtesy whether it's to the teacher yes. or to a fellow student, that it's time now to to focus on that person, not because your what you have on your screen is not important, but because what that person has to say right now is important. And and it was just, okay, we're gonna have professional courtesy right now. Please give me professional courtesy. Please give you know your fellow student professional courtesy. And I just thought that was a great way to describe that process more than Get off your screens, you know, close your laptops. I just thought that brought together all the elements of, of what we're trying to teach kids. Um, so that's something I'm going to start uh, using in, inside of my teaching and, and try to um, convey to my um, faculty as well. Right. And I would all
0: uh, go ahead. Please, yeah, please share that link if you can find it.
2: And I would also add
1: to that that
2: you know I I I admit a bit of a bias here. I I used to not like it. Uh, so especially when I first started teaching, when you know teachers wouldn't stand in line in the cafeteria. You know the cut in line folks that that go to the beginning of the line. And I always ask myself, you know, why is it why isn't the case? I never understood that. And in fact, if you stand in line with kids, weird things happen. They start to talk to you right? And they have a conversation with you that's outside of that piece. But I really think that schools probably do owe it to students to also be talking about internally the appropriate use of of cell phones. I have not had the opportunity to have to sit in a faculty meeting as a member of the faculty since the cell phone uh, craze uh, came into light. But my guess is if you walk into the typical faculty meeting, there's an awful lot of noses and phones. Um, I think part of that is, you know, creating good, efficient faculty meetings, which has always been part of my own shtick personally, but the other piece of it is is that, you know, if we expect that out of kids, right, I like that notion of the professional courtesy. I think that's a really great way of putting that, and um, you know, at risk of sounding cliche, that teaches an important life lesson, too, right? Like, at some point, it's companies that are tackling with this problem are going to create rules like that. Like we need to be able to have 15 minutes in the morning where everyone puts their phone down. We talk through the day together and then, you know, do what we need to do. And, and I I like that. I think that's a very clever uh, construct to use with kids.
0: Shout out to Michael Goldhaber, his wonderful article from years ago called The Attention Economy. You know, we do not live in an information economy. Economies are defined by what is scarce, not what is plentiful, and information is plentiful, attention is scarce. Therefore, one of the best gifts we can give to someone is our full attention, be that our spouse, significant other, or child, grandparent, whatever, or our teacher, so – Good stuff. Um, I'm going to mention quickly, and then we need to do Geeks of the Week and wrap up. Uh, big news from Flickr, all right? I've been a Flickr user for a long time. I got tens of thousands of pictures on Flickr. Really glad that Smug Mug bought Flickr back in maybe April, earlier part of this year. Um, but now they've gone ahead and decided that you can only have a 1,000 photos on a free account, although, and I think maybe... One of you dropped in this other article that Creative Commons images will will live on if you've licensed them earlier. You can't just change all your your images now to Creative Commons. Um, but uh, where you're going to need to pay to be a pro user. But they're really looking to cultivate the community. And so big big cheers were were uh, you know heard in the Fryer household this last week is that that got announced, and I'm excited because so many Web 2.0 graveyard stories are out there with wonderful tools you know today's meat was one of the ones more recently that bit the dust and so you know Flickr is one of the great tools from from the mid 90s that has continued to live on but it's just it's very interesting actually to read some of the stories of how poorly Flickr i think uh encouraged innovation and and really a, a pretty toxic culture for creativity and uh Anyway, that's interesting to think about from a business standpoint as well as a school standpoint. But I'm glad Smug Mug has them, and I'm glad they're going to live on. Just make sure that you update your account to a pro account by, I think, you know, January 9th or, or something like that.
2: I uh, I thought of you, Wes, when I saw all of the Flickr um,
1: uh, coverage. Nope. Oh, lost Jason. Hey. I, I I just found it really interesting that that basically, if I read it right, they're just going to delete. Any photos more than sixty or more than a thousand, right? And that's kind of their their it, idea.
0: It sounds like until you have a pro account, so maybe the pictures are, are still there. So, Jason, there you you're, you're you're back. Uh, Hello, that was weird. weird. <laughs> the flicker. <laughs> were trying uh, to I, censor you.
2: I know they're trying to quiet me, man. Uh, <laughs> so, are you satisfied, West, with the direction of of where SmugMug is taking Flickr?
0: I think so, right. I mean, I want it to be a vibrant community. Um, I've been a pro user before. It's something I'm very comfortable paying for. I think the idea they said is, you know, by just giving away everything, um, you know, you, you, people are invested in a different way. Than, than if they're being a pro user, so I'm I'm also thrilled that that Creative Commons clause is in there because that's one of the yeah. b- the best things. I mean, if that was to go away, pretty much 95 percent of all the photo content on my blog would would go away because <laughs> I've just been embedding you know Creative Commons images, my own, but also those of others. So. Right. Are, are you feeling good about that, or are you? Are, you've moved over to Google Photos entirely, I guess. Yeah, you... yeah, and I,
2: in fact, uh, canceled a couple of Flickr accounts. And I, I, I did have a lot of hopes for, um, when Melissa Mayers took over Yahoo that she would, uh, you know, put some energy into it. And obviously, they expanded the amount of storage available, and they, my understanding, there were some tweaks that were added to the system that made it a more efficient tool. But it was in desperate need of, of some modern day maintenance that, that I'm hoping Smug Mug can can help pull off. And you know, when I. I think that uh, speaking only for myself but I 'm guessing this is probably not an unpopular notion in this room that you know like I love the free internet and the free internet is awesome, but you know the free internet also brings you tools that are here today gone tomorrow, so for stuff I really use i'd much prefer to invest you know a nominal amount of money every month to make sure that tool is is kept up, and that those that the creative minds that created that tool are also compensated for that right and I think that's a, a key piece of this, but yeah, I was really happy to see. Those that, that they're going in that direction because it's, it's, I, oh, I knew, I know too many like complete Flickr devotees, right? Like, I, the, the ones that are into it are shockingly into it, and you know, that tool would be a real loss if that just disappeared someday for when it, with the massive media archives to go along with it.
1: So, what, what is the, the age, what's the Flickr age? At what point do you hit a group of people that? Flickr means nothing to them. Is that 25? Is it 18? Is it?
0: Yeah. Good question. I I don't know. Yeah. It was a thing in the nineties, right? Yeah.
2: And the people that survived into the 2000s, I mean, there are a lot of a lot of professional photographers are super into it for storage reasons, right? And and to be able to make, you know, semi-public and private uh, galleries. So I, I know that to be the case. The people that I know that are super into it are all uh, tech people. So the uh, there's I know at least ten or so folks that have. You know, a long archive in it, and I mean, I think SmugMug obviously has a a commercial shtick that is is quite different from Flickr. But I think the fact that they do have SmugMug has a, a big following in the professional photographer community means that at least for that particular community, we're made a, a, a viable tool. Honestly, uh, with iPhotos, uh, well, that it, it it's not as consistent as it probably needs to be from a cloud backup, but it's getting there. And then of course Google Photos, which I think is the you know neatest thing. Uh, for photographs, honestly, since Flickr, um, you know, for most people, I imagine it's, they, they just don't think about it. It just happens and photos are safe forever and ever and ever.
1: Amen.
0: Yep. All right. We are a little bit off the top of the hour. So I think we need to do some geeks of the week and we need to wrap it up. Um, Jason Kern, would you like to share some geeks of the week with us first?
1: Yeah, so I tossed a couple of things in there uh, on the VR front. If you don't know that Unity gives free licenses for schools, um, there's there's actually a little application, but everyone I've talked to that has put in a, a legitimate application from an educational institution has gotten free Unity licenses, which is a really cool um, uh, offering uh, to have such a professional item for free. Uh, for students, and then uh, talked a little bit about Raspberry Pi. But if if you're into Raspberry Pi or just looking into it, the Raspberry Pi Projects page is is a really really neat and cool place to uh, find some some extension ideas of what you can do with a thirty-five dollar computer.
0: Awesome. My uh, gigs a week is one tab. Uh, I have a link in there to an example. I've uh, I don't know. I'm still not sure if this is what I want to. You've forever uh it in terms of sharing, it's a little bit contrary to how I've I've done, but anyway, I'm doing a little newsletter on Sunday nights, and I'm recording a video, and it's out there for a week free, and then it's in this library that people can subscribe to. Anyway, I do the show notes of that. Um, actually, I just do the whole thing really quick because I don't want to spend too much time in Chrome with all these tabs, and so sometimes that's like you know 15 tabs, and so one tab. I think I I learned uh, I learned about it um, from Eric Kurtz. If you don't follow Eric Kurtz out of Ohio, he is the you know. Uh, Google Yoda. Um, there's a lot of them, but anyway, he's phenomenal. And so anyway, One Tab is free and you can uh, use it to collapse all your tabs and restore them, but you can also name them and then you can um, choose to make a web page of them to be able to share. Um, and then the link I think I gave in the example, now this is an update. It actually has all of the One Tab shares that you've done. So it's a, a, a web page that's got every, every single one. So if you're using that, you know, as I am for like an ongoing project, kind of cool, and it's totally free. Jason Neifer.
2: This is a follow-up from uh, the tool I shared probably, I know, 10, 11 episodes ago, but my my goal has always been to find a great way to access um, my uh, text messages, my phone-based text messages on the web, so I don't have to uh, you know, have a phone with me, especially during the day at work when I have a, a constant barrage of very important text messages going on with my spouse. Um, and I had previously been using the messages app, the native uh, messages app on Android, but it was just turning too wonky and it didn't always connect. And um, I I also didn't like that I was locked into that SMS client, which also doesn't work super great on on my carrier T-Mobile. But I found one that last week that has turned out to be absolutely. Stunning and solves two big problems for me. The first, uh, it's called Pulse, and it's a great SMS client. It's a great thing about Android. You can chuck any of the standard apps in Android and go with something else if you don't like what the stock app looks like, but this replaces your your messaging app on Android. And not only does it allow web-based access to uh, your messages, it also automatically archives them to the cloud. Uh you pay a one a one price of $10. It gives you lifetime subscription to the uh, service, and all you need to do to get all your text messages back is to, after you wipe your phone or get a new phone, download the Pulse app, sign in. It uh, uh, restores all of your previous messages, so they're constantly being uploaded to the cloud, and they have a wonderful web, uh, web-based app that you can utilize to uh, text from other devices, including tablets. So it's the Pulse SMS app in the Google Play Store, and I've only been using it for about about a week now, but it's already kind of changed the way I engage with my phone.
0: Will you be getting a new Pixel phone, by the way?
2: Uh, <laughs> I wish. I I really want one, but I have to say, I've, I've decided that for a little while, I'm going to stick with phones that have removable batteries. So I'm still using my LG V20, which is a two-year-old smartphone that recently received the the Android Oreo update. So That's last year's update finally came to this phone this year. And I've got a nice svelte case for it. And um, I, I've decided that despite my love of changing phones, about every 13 14 minutes uh i think um uh, i'll stick with this one for a while and see where that goes
0: jason kern are you a happy iphone 10 user or what are you, are you uh packing these days There's um, my. look at that the notch the notch all right i do wish that ios 12 was didn't actually degrade my my uh battery a little bit there on on i on uh the, iPhone six, but okay, yeah, <laughs> probably time for me to upgrade. All right, well, it is time for us to close the show. Uh, Jason Kern, where can folks find you online if you are not uh, being an amazing guest on a Wednesday night podcast?
1: Uh, uh, easiest place to catch me is on Twitter at Jason M. Kern. Very good.
0: Mr. Knifer. Dr. Knifer. Dr. How, how could I possibly forget the official title? Why, why
2: thank you. So, uh, usually people only call me that to mock me, but the, um uh, you can find me on Twitter at TechSavvyTeach. Uh, you can also see my work on the NCC Tech Savvy Teacher blog, blog.ncc.org. And as a reminder, our uh, registration is now open for the NCC Conference in fabulous Seattle, Washington, at the end of February this year, uh, ncc.org slash conference 19 for more information about that event, where you can see me and many of my partners in crime speak um, on various issues of the day.
0: And I don't know if I'd mm. revealed this, but rumor is there was an Oklahoma City technology director accepted for NCCE and, uh, said person has not booked, uh, airline tickets, but I think <laughs> that will be in the cards to trek up there. So super yeah,
2: excellent. I look forward to
0: maybe a live show together. So you can find me on Twitter at W Fryer. My blog is speedofcreativity.org. Uh, uh Jason Kerr may know this, but we're doing. Uh, digital citizenship stuff for school at digsit.us and we are going to be sharing a, a chapel talk our school psychologists and I on Monday that's going to talk about screen time and wellness so we're trying to uh, encapsulate some of these messages and some short uh, you know catchy phrases and then we're going to give a screen time fasting challenge to you know students and families to try it on a weekend to do a three hour fasting challenge so anyway we'll probably have the video of that up as well as some slides. So this has been the EdTech Situation Room. We appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much, Peggy George, for uh, joining us. As also uh, sharing some links. We've got some uh, additional links that have been dropped in. Jason put the professional courtesy video from Edutopia, April 14th, 2017, in there. I want to encourage everybody to check out those show notes at edtechsr.com slash links. Please join us again if you can live. If you have joined us asynchronously, let us know. Give us a shout out. Follow us on Twitter at EdTechSR. Reach out to any of us on the show. Um, We'd love to hear from you and would love to hear any feedback, questions that you may have, or topics that you would like to hear us address in the future. So until next time, stay savvy, be safe, everyone, and uh, monitor that screen time. Yeah, what are you guys Mm -hmm. doing watching the screen? Turn this thing off.
1: (laughs) See you guys.